The following audio is from Sacred City Church. For more information, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Good morning. Happy New Year. Hope you had a great holiday season. And I hope you're ready to get back after it this morning. Welcome to uh, Sacred City. If you're here because of a New Year's resolution, I figure I got one or two good weeks with you, so I'm going to give it all I got today. Kind of thought maybe if I uh, keep you here long enough, you might even lose some weight and kill two resolutions with one stone. So for those of us, for those of you just joining us, uh, we are making our way through the entire first book of the Bible. We've been here for a few months and we will be studying Genesis for the most uh, or most, most of the remainder of 2013. Uh, Since we've had about a five-week break from Genesis during Advent, let me try to get you caught up really quick here. Genesis is a book about beginnings. It really is the book of the beginning of all things. In it, Moses, the author, teaches us that the meaning of life is found in a relationship with God and relationships with other human beings. As we create things and cultivate things for God's glory. We are to live near God, to know Him, to worship Him, and to walk with Him. And we live in close relationships with each other, all the while fulfilling the command of God to be fruitful and multiply, to tend creation and steward it for God's glory. That's what life is all about. According to Genesis, according to the God of the Bible, that is what you were meant for, the Westminster Shorter Catechism summarizes that by asking, what is the chief end of man? And the answer being to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But unfortunately, our hearts uh, do not recognize God as our chief end. And most of the time we do not enjoy him. And the Bible says that the reason for that is, happens in Genesis 3, when man willfully chooses to rebel against God. And that rebellion caused a curse to come upon all of God's creation. Genesis doesn't track any time for us. Uh, It doesn't waste any time for us tracking mankind's descent into sin and the destructive force it has on human flourishing. We see the entrance of shame, fear, jealousy, envy, murder, adultery, idol worship, and a myriad of of other maladies that begin to tarnish the image of God and man and wreak havoc on his relationships. Here is the Bible's sweeping anthropology. Mankind is jacked up. I mean, like Jerry Springer jacked up, all right? Like Maury Povich jacked up, and there is absolutely nothing mankind can do to fix it. So thankfully, God doesn't just leave things like that. If he did, it'd be a really short book. No, God takes things into his sovereign and all-powerful hands, and he brings about the redemption of all things. But he accomplishes it. He, he, He accomplishes it in a rather inconspicuous way. He works through some really jacked up and shady people before he sends his son to the world, to make all things new. If you remember, everyone in the human race in Genesis here, everyone in the human race had forgotten about God and went their own way. 
But God looked down and saw this one guy named Abram, and he decided to show his grace and his favor to this one man. This moon-worshipping, jacked-up, pagan man that was minding his own business, God shows up, calls him, tells him to follow him. Abram agrees and follows, but he does so in a series of fits and starts. He is, as often as we like to say, he's our father, Abraham, Abram, is our father in the faith. But Abram's faith was far from perfect. He wavered at times, and he teaches us that we're saved not by the strength or not by the purity of our faith, but by the object of our faith, Jesus Christ. So we saw God's promise uh, to Abram. He says, I'm going to make you a father of many nations. I'm going to bless you with a lot of children. I'm going to give you a long lineage. And his wife, Sarai, was about 65 years old without any children. And God told Abram, I'm going to give you children that will bless this world. Now listen, that's hard to believe when you're 75 and your wife is 65, right? It's tough to believe. And one of the first things we saw Abram do when things got a little tough in the desert was to take things into his own hands and leave the land that God told him to to go to and head off into Egypt where he ended up pimping his wife off to Pharaoh to save his own skin. It was a pretty sad day for Abram and for Abram's wife. The man who was supposed to protect and provide for her tells her to go to another another man's bed to protect himself. The man who was supposed to lay his life down for his wife reverses roles and allows her to be taken into the bedchamber of Pharaoh. It's a dark day for Abram. It's a dark day for Sarai. But thankfully, God in his grace intervenes and warns Pharaoh not to sleep with her. And Pharaoh then gets mad and kicks Abram and Sarai and all their people out of Egypt. Funny thing though, Abram did pick something up in Egypt. Sarai gets this servant girl named Hagar. And Hagar is going to have quite the role to play in our text today. So, just so you know, just to get us caught up, Abram, like us, is a fool in many ways. He's Jerry Springer jacked up, but God still chooses him by sheer grace, and he makes a one-way covenant with him, God says, essentially, you're a mess, but I still choose you. Just trust me. Your faith is a mess, but just trust me. Don't have faith in your faith. Have faith in me. And here we are in Genesis chapter 16, 10 years after God shows up and promised a child to Abraham the first time. All right, this is 10 years later. God shows up to Abraham. I'm going to give you children. We're 10 years down the road, Genesis 16. If you've got your Bible, please open up to Genesis chapter 16. Um, there's always some Bibles in the back that you can grab. You can also um, use the Version app. All of our liturgy flows right through the liturgy uh, or the Version live, the live events app that you can search there. We're in Genesis chapter 16, first book of the Bible. When you're there, and listen, at Sacred City, the way that we preach, it's called um, 
It's, they're expository messages. We exposit the text. We go verse by verse through the text. So it's very important that you have a Bible, that you read along with me. This is not a sit and just receive. This is going through because I want you to see how and where I get what I'm getting and how, how the author wrote what he wrote. I really want you to learn as you're, as you're listening today. So um, Genesis 16, you there? Say there. All right. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. All right. Ten years into this thing, still no babies. Ten years after God showed up, showed up and promised a child to Abram, and look where we are. Still no kids. Now, we can learn a lot from this text right here. God operates in ways. Now, you're not going to like this. Nobody does. God operates in ways and at a pace that we as humans just don't like. In fact, time is a key actor here. And for us to really understand the context of the story, we have to understand how much time plays a factor in this role and in this story. Time has a key part to play in what's about to play out. See, God has never, as far as we know, God has never spoken to Sarai, only Abram. But Sarai, some moms in the place might realize, or some ladies in the place might realize, Sarai really wants a baby. Now, it's a little bit different from our society. There's plenty of women, you know, that really love babies. And we, we love babies because God loves babies. We love uh, be fruitful, multiply. But if you've been to college in, in this day and age, you know, our, our, our identities have kind of shifted. See, in this Society. It's a patriarchal society. Women found their identity through giving birth. They found their identity through their children. You were, you, you really did, you found your sense of worth, your sense of meaning through the children that you give birth to. Many would have said that if you, well, they did say Sarai here was, would be cursed with infertility. Now, a lot of people say, oh, man, that's patriarchal society. I'm glad we've stepped away from that. I'm glad women don't have to have babies to have identities anymore. But we've replaced it. We go to college, we go to school, and we learn, no, 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 you don't find your identity through your children. You find your identity through your profession. You find your identity through your career. So now women are putting off till 30s and as long as late as they can. They want to be successful in their business before they start trying to have babies. I would ask, is, is one identity any better than the other? One false identity any better than the other? But at this moment, Sarai really, really, really wants children. She knows if she has children, she's going to find a meaning. She's going to find a significance there. She's going to find an identity there. But nothing. But one day, Abram comes and he tells her that they're going to be parents. God said, I'm going to be the father of many nations. He didn't really say anything about you, Sarah. But he said, I'm going to be the father of many nations. So more than likely, this is going to work out well for us. Just be patient, Sarah. This is going to work out. God promised. Now, Sarah, can can you just imagine here? Can you imagine what Sarah is going through? Sarah starts to get her hopes up, right? She starts picking out baby names. She starts decorating the nursery. She starts to tell her friends and her family, I'm going to have a baby. God promised. Now, 10 years into this thing, things start to get weird, right? 
Ten years into this, still no baby. The story starts to get old. People are like, yeah, yeah, crazy old Sarai, right? The 70-year-old lady walking around with a doll, talking about getting pregnant. Starts to creep people out, right? God said he's got... And you're like, this lady, she's been saying that for 10 years, just walking on the other side of the street, right? Now, do you see how time begins to play a major role here? 10 painful years, painful years of waiting, hoping, and praying. Still no baby. I know for me, time is usually one of the biggest factors in my freakouts. It's usually the cause of much, if not all, of my doubts and my fears. From a human point of view, God is, capital letters, slow. And waiting causes me to get antsy, right? We all love to wait, don't we? We love it, right? Do you do the thing in the line at Walmart? Where you pick the line and then you're like, did I pick right? Was I right? Was I right? <laughs> don't, don't, ah, right? You're like, the whole time you're like, I could cut over. Right? Any moment I could cut over. You're judging, right? Because that 15 extra seconds, it's meaningful, right? You could send out one more tweet with that extra 15 seconds or something, right? God is slow. We just need to, in our mind, all right? God is not slow. God is, yeah, he operates outside of time. I don't even want to get into all this. God is always on time. But for us, from a human perspective, God is painfully slow. What's God doing here? First verse, the author just, sl- yep, 10 years into this thing, still no baby. See, God is setting the stage right now. He's positioning the actors. He's positioning the backdrop and setting the context for him to do the impossible. 65. I imagine Sarah's like 65. Hmm, menopause more than likely setting it. She's thinking, I may, maybe, maybe 75. She's thinking, ah, no, I'm done. This ain't happening, right? He's making it seem, the only way this is going to happen, the only way the promise is going to be fulfilled is if God does the impossible, if God works a miracle. But Sarai, maybe this might seem familiar. Sarai don't want a miracle right now. Sarai is tired of the drama. She's tired of the waiting. She's tired of the faith it takes to put in God's promises and try to rest in in an identity in him and say, okay, he promised me children, but they're not here yet, but I'm going to trust and I'm going to wait patiently. So she does what all of us do on occasion. God is slow. So let's speed up this process. You know, maybe he's not even slow. Maybe he's incompetent. And he really needs my help. More than likely, oh, maybe he's busy. He's got a world to manage, by the way, right? Maybe he's busy, so he really needs me to take things into my own hands and get to work and pull myself up on my bootstraps and I'm going to figure out a way to make this happen. Man getting involved in the affairs of God. And listen, I'm just going to tell you, that's always the story, the beginning of a story that is going to end badly. Hmm, maybe God can't. I'll help him out. 
Good luck with that. Good luck with that. So that's exactly where we find ourselves. Sarai loses faith in God and decides to take things into her own hands. Now let's look. Verse 2. Or let's just start. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. Remember, they picked her up in Egypt uh, when, when things went badly there. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from buried children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. Now, just before you freak out here, this was actually a very common cultural practice. This was um, having a surrogate mother, basically. A woman, if a wealthy woman, she couldn't get pregnant. She would give her her servant to her husband, and she would basically, it's like being a surrogate mom, or she would be an adoptive mother. It was not condoned by God. It was not, um, it was a sin. It was wrong, but it was a common cultural practice. And of course, great man of faith, Abram. Father Abraham had many sons, right? The guy that we all love, Father Abraham, what's he do? Hmm. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Sarai, great plan. Good plan here, right? Listen, this is just, a, this is just all around a bad plan, all right? Men, I'm going to tell you this, men were called to lead, But because of sin, we often do this very poorly. Women, you are called to help and to follow. But because of sin, they often do this very poorly as well. So Sarai is tired. She's hurting. She can't handle it anymore. Seeing other women get pregnant. Hearing, you know, this, hearing her husband God's going to take care of it. God's going to do it. The weight is unbearable. She can't handle it anymore. So she hatches this brilliant plan. Hey, Abraham, see that pretty young thing right there? Hagar, I want you to go into her. I want you to go sleep with her. I want you to marry her. Abram, being strong, staunch man of faith, said, oh, okay. <laughs> Listen, ladies. I know you're smart. I know your relational and emotional quotients are many times more advanced than us men, but all your plans and schemes aren't golden. Sometimes, ladies, we as men need to listen to God and not you. Sometimes you miss it too. Abram, like Adam in the garden, fails to listen to God and he fails to lead his wife into the truth. He listens to her and then follows. Now, this has got to be the biggest shocker in the Bible right here, right? Two ladies, one man, things get catty. Shocker. I don't know what Sarah was thinking. Abram sleeps with Hagar. Well, let's look. Let's just look what happens here. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. So now Abram's got two wives here. This is polygamy. Now listen, the Bible, I hope you're going to see this. The Bible does not condone polygamy. 
ever. You see polygamy, bad things are coming. Man does it in their own sin. Bad things are coming though, all right? God ordained from the beginning of time when Genesis 1, one man, one woman come together. That's what a marriage is before God, in the sight of God. Two become one flesh, all right? This is where things are getting jacked up. Things are moving in a, in a, in a bad direction, okay? So he goes in, verse 4, he went into Hagar and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, uh-huh, she looked with contempt on her mistress. Now, Abram sleeps with Hagar. She gets pregnant and then starts looking at Sarai with contempt. Now, that word doesn't really convey, probably more than likely for most of us, that word doesn't really convey what's going on. Hagar now had the upper hand. So you've got uh, 75-year-old grandma, well, no grandma, but the age of a grandma, and you got little 20-something-year-old 20 Hagar, okay? One can't have babies. Abram's been promised. This has been promised to Abram. You're the father of many nations. Maybe Abram's thinking, oh, this is, what, this is how I'm going to have a baby. God wanted me to, oh, I see. God wanted me to take things into my own hands. God wasn't really going to do a miracle. God wasn't really going to do this all by grace. He needed my help. He needed my trusty loins, right? Sounds like a man, don't it? And now Hagar's thinking, oh, the promise wasn't for Sarah. It was about me. That I must be the mother of many nations. She had what Sarai was so desperate for. She had a son, or she was pregnant. She was going to have a son. And Hagar began, listen, when he says she looked at her with contempt, Hagar began to look at Sarai as worthless. Why is he even married to you? Abram doesn't need you anymore. He's got me. I'm pregnant. I'm going to give him a son. God has looked on me with favor. I'm the chosen one, not you, Sarah. You're worthless and barren. And you're going to die worthless and barren. Can you feel the pain of Sarah building up here? Can you feel the hopelessness? Sarah's sinful scheme to take God's place and get a baby on her own has horribly backfired. She's still barren. But to add insult to injury, she's living with a woman who throws it back in her face and tells her she's worthless every day. It's just being piled up. And then not surprisingly, verse 5, Sarah blames Abe. And Sarah said to Abraham, may the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarah, uh, behold, your servants in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarah dealt harshly with her and she fled from her. Again, Abraham 
Abram, not Abraham yet, he will be Abraham. Abram fails to lead his wife. Men, your abdication of your responsibility to lead your family is nothing new. It's as old as Abraham. I get Abram here. I get him. You see, you got two ticked off wives. You're not going to win in that situation. I can guarantee you one thing. You're not going to leave that discussion unscathed. There will be blood, right? You're going to get between two women. You've already, I mean, you are, you're already in it. You got two wives. You're already in it. You've lived for a long time with the other one. You just got the other one pregnant. She's young and beautiful. Sarai, she's pushing, she's 75. This is not going to go well for you. Abram knew that this was his failure. This was a failure to lead And instead of responding in faith and repentance, instead of going to both women and saying, you're right, I need to own this. I I screwed up. I did not lead you well. I did not shepherd you well. As Ephesians will later tell us, I did not wash you with the water of the word. When you came to me and you said, hey, God's not doing what he said he would do. Here's Hagar. I should have said, honey, absolutely not. That's against the will of God. That's against the the law of God that's been written on our heart to have more than one wife. That's not God's will. That's not what I'm going to do. I'm not going to sin to try to bring about the plan of God. Many of us try to do that. We try to sin to bring about the plan or the will of God. We're willing to try to bend the rules. We're trying to bend God's will to get what we really want. He should have led. What's he say? Hey, you do what you want. I'm watching football. Whatever. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm busy. Mm-hmm. That's fine. That's not how we lead our wives, men. It's not how we lead. I trust her. Yeah, I trust my wife too. But you, not every single plan, not every single idea, not everything that pops into her head is going to be a great plan and going to be in God's will. Absolutely not. Then Sarai <laughs> dealt harshly with her. Shocker! Retaliation! The victim becomes the victimizer. Abram wins worst husband of the year right here. Abram's failure to lead is leading his family to failure. Abram's failure to lead is leading his family into failure. So here we are. Just like every good Jerry Springer episode, we've got more than one woman and a baby daddy. And I want, to see, I want you to see something here. Sarai idolized, idolized children. She wanted to have a baby more than she wanted to obey and love God. That is the definition of idol worship. When a good thing becomes more important to you than God himself, you make that thing into a substitute God. 
When a good thing, listen to me, when a good thing becomes more important to you, more, more meaningful to you, to your identity and your meaning as a, your, your identity and your purpose and your meaning as a person, when something other than God becomes more meaningful to you than that, that thing now becomes a substitute God. It can be money, often is. It can be the approval of people, often is. It can be the thought of children. When I get a child, then I'll be whole. When I'll get a child, then I'll really be loved by God. When I get a child, then I'll really have an identity. When I get the job, when they call me doctor, finally I'll have meaning in my life. Those things become false gods. Sarai wanted children. And Sarai, because she wanted children more than she wanted to love and please God, she takes things into her own hands, in her own strength, and she gets what she wanted. I got a child. But what happens? Everything backfires. She hates it. Idol worship always backfires. Some of the cruelest meanest people on the planet are the people who said, that's what I want. And then they get it. And once they get it, they look down upon everybody around them. They crush them. And then that thing usually backfires. Why do so many people, when they, when they get wealthy, when they make it, actors and you know, movie stars and musicians, when they make it, their life goes off the rails. Us normal people look back and say, if I had all that, that wouldn't happen to me. It's because we say, when I'm there, when I, when I get the contract, I'll be, a, I'll be somebody. And then we get it and we realize, I feel just the same. It promised me an identity, but it didn't deliver it. It promised me meaning and significance, but it didn't deliver. When I get the girl, then I'll be happy. When I get married, then I'll be happy. When I get the promotion, then I'll be happy. When I retire, then I'll be happy. Lies, lies, lies. And don't be a fool and believe it. Only God can make us happy. Idol worship always backfires. It overpromises, it underdelivers. Sarai gets what she thought would make her happy, but instead, it only makes her more hopeless and vindictive. Again, the victim now becomes the victimizer. If you've ever been there, you know the despair when you think that thing will make me happy, and then you get it, and then you realize <gasps> it doesn't. This is despair. I thought it would make, I thought it would tell me that I'm good enough. I thought that championship or that thing or that trophy or that, I thought it would say, I thought it would communicate to me that I'm somebody. And then you get it and you realize you feel exactly the same. When a good thing takes the place of God, becomes a bad thing. And it happens. I don't care if you call yourself a Christian. I don't care if you grew up in the church and you're baptized at eight days old. I don't, it doesn't matter. This is universal. 
Our heart is desperately wicked and goes after idols. It goes after other things to find an identity outside of Christ. If anything tells you who you are more than your identity in Christ, you're off the rails. So Sarai treats pregnant Hagar. Look look what it does to Sarai. She's the victim. She's barren. She's infertile. She's hurting. She's been made fun of. She's she's been told she's worthless because she can't have a child. She's a victim. Listen, she's been sinned against. Okay, let's just say it. She has been sinned against. Every one of us, sometime in our life, by our parents, grandparents, teachers, friends, bosses. We've been sinned against. We are all in some capacity victims. But how do we respond? Sarai responds with hatred and animosity. The victim becomes the victimizer. That identity that she has as a mom, it's been hit, it's been crushed, and now she's nothing left. So she's lashing out and she's angry. Someone else has what she wants. Someone else has the thing that she really needs. She's lashing out. She has so much hatred and animosity that she starts treating Hagar with contempt. She starts, more than likely most commentators say that she probably even had her beaten. Pregnant Hagar. She treats her with so much hatred and animosity that Hagar has to flee for her life. Hagar, she picks up her stuff. Young girl, pregnant, Husband's not doing anything. She's got to pick up her stuff on her own and try to flee back to Egypt. She's on the run, pregnant, headed back home. But on the way, she stops at a well to grab a drink. Verse 7. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? Now, I want to show you something really important here. An angel is a messenger of God. Angels show up several times all across the Bible. Um, They usually freak people out. The first thing they say is, hey, fear not, fear not, because they're, you know, peel the person up off the ground because it kind of freaks you out, right? Sometimes they show up looking like men. Sometimes they show up, you know, bright, you know, whatever, warrior of light type stuff. But here, this is something specific, and we need to look in the text. Verse 7, it says this, the, the angel of the Lord. Okay, this is different than just any old angel. All right? The angel is... Mo, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna let the cat out of the bag here. Most it's all, commentators, scholars, they're kind of a little bit all over the board because every time the angel of the Lord shows up, the person thinks it's God. When the angel of the Lord shows up, they say, "Whoa, God just spoke to me." So many commentators, myself included, believe that the angel of the Lord is the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. This is because when he, when the, the angel of the Lord speaks, she says, God, God's speaking to me right now. God sees me. Every time the angel, not just a, a angel, but every time the angel shows up, they think it's God. 
So let me paint this picture. An unbelieving, single, single, pregnant, and adulterous young woman is sitting by a well. And then the angel of the Lord shows up. Sounds a lot like something Jesus might do. Or actually something Jesus did do in John 4 when he sat down next to the well with the adulterous woman. Right? Woman, where's your husband? I ain't got no husband. (laughs) Gotcha. (laughs) Right? So it's my belief that this is Jesus Christ right here. I want you to think about this. Pregnant, single, abandoned by her husband, beaten by her, 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 uh, I guess I'd call her mistress. I don't know what you'd call her. Beaten, sent away. And Jesus shows up to talk with her. Did she go looking for Jesus? Well, she's saying, all right, you know what? This is, life's really difficult right now. I just need to get out in the desert and meet with Jesus. I'm going to really, you know what? I'm going to try harder this time and I'm going to go out and I'm going to talk to God and I'm just going to figure out what I'm supposed to do. Absolutely not. She was hightailing it back to Egypt. She said, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what's going on. My life is out of control. I'm going back to the old ways. And Jesus goes out to meet her. Jesus goes looking for Hagar. We are about to see, the easiest way I can say this, we're about to see the gospel according to Hagar. Thousands of years before Jesus Christ is ever, ever born and put on flesh. God seeks after. We should tattoo this to our head. God seeks after the sinful and the rejected. God goes looking for the sinful and the rejected. The seemingly insignificant servant girl who didn't even know or love God, who committed adultery with dirty old father Abraham, takes off, heading back to her old life. But Jesus goes after her. And this is phenomenal right here. Jesus calls her by name. Hagar. You're like, what's the big deal? From a commentary that we sell out there by Bruce Waltke. This is the... Listen, hear this. This is the only instance in ancient Near Eastern literature where God addresses a woman by name. Not just in the Bible, folks. In all ancient Near Eastern history, this is the only time the divine speaks to a woman by name. Patriarchal society. Men ruled, right? Women just be quiet, stay in the back, right? Not with God. Jesus Christ comes down and says, Hagar. Insignificant servant girl, adulteress, knocked up with old Uncle Ab- old Father Abraham, and he says, "Hagar," calls her by name. What a thrill! What an honor! This is absolutely unheard of in a patriarchal society. God speaks to a woman by name. And how does she respond? She responds with worship. She responds by lifting up her voice and responding back to that. We call this doxology. She responds and she says this. She confers a name upon God. She calls him God El Roy. The God who sees. The God of seeing. Now again, this is the only time a person in the Old Testament will ever ascribe a name to God. Every other time, God will show up and tell us his name. 
I'm Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. This is the only time in the Old Testament where someone else ascribes a name to God. But this young girl says, you are a God who sees. Listen to this. I thought I was alone. I thought I could just run away from my problems. I thought I could just pack my bags and head back to my old life. I thought there was no one to fight my battles. I thought there was no one to keep me safe. My husband saw, but he didn't act. My husband let this injustice happen to me. He let Sarai treat me with this contempt and hatred. But you saw. You're the God who sees. And you pursued me. This is shocking. Listen, God is all-seeing and all-knowing. He knows the sins that have been done against you, and He knows the sins that you have done against Him. You can't run from that God. You can run, but you can't hide. He's everywhere, and He's pursuing you with a radical, one-way love. This should give us a clear picture of the gospel. God's not looking down going, oh man, Hagar, she's awesome. I need that girl on my team. He looks down at a sinful, rejected, hurt, broken young girl who sinned sexually and her life's off the rails. And he says, I'm going to show up to her and I'm going to call her by name. I'm going to let her see me in a sense. And then when, when Jesus, when he pursues Hagar, she responds and she says, truly, I have seen him who looks after me. I can't help but hear husband and wife language there. Abram was a poor husband who didn't look after her. But Jesus is the true and better Abram that pursues and looks after his bride. I'm thankful that Jesus pursues us. Men, I'm going to put this out there right now. Do you still pursue your wife? And don't be like, well, what does that mean? Um, think back a few months before you got married. It probably looks like that. Right? When you didn't think you had her quite yet. Right? When you had flowers were, were more than just a waste of money. I tried to come up with that whole, that whole like argument, babe, Valentine's day was just created by Hallmark. It was like, you know, like this whole, like, I don't have to buy a card. I tell you, I love you all the time. <laughs> Doesn't work like that. Men, are you pursuing her? See, Jesus doesn't just lay down his life for his wife. He does that. He lays down his life for his bride, the church. He does that. That's great. Maybe you're making great sacrifices, men. Maybe you're working hard and providing and putting a roof over the head. Maybe you're doing that. That's great. Jesus does that. He lays down his life for the church. That's phenomenal. But he doesn't just do that. He also pursues a bride. He comes after us when we're gone and when we're wayward and our hearts are cold. Jesus pursues us. So men, are you pursuing your wife? And actually, if you're not even married in here, men, pursue her. And that doesn't happen on Facebook. I'm just telling you. 
All right? Go after. Get to work. Buy a shirt with buttons on it. That's not in the text. That's just <laughs> some commentary. <laughs> I, I, I'm, a lot of young people, a lot of single people, a lot of young men don't know how to pursue people, don't know how to pursue a woman anymore. They think they're going to sit at home in mom's basement playing Call of Duty and she's going to get on the other end of the little headset. <gasps> it's not how you find a woman. Pursue her. All right, that's enough of that. So a lot of people... Now listen, this, this, this also shows us something else. God, God, Jesus sees her. A lot of people are so accustomed to hiding their sin and running away from their past that when we talk about sin, they always feel judged. Justin, you talk about sin, you talk about the law, you talk about sin, I just feel judged, I feel condemned. They think that if they can keep their pain and their sin out of sight and out of mind, they're going to be better off. See, that's what Hagar's doing here. I got to leave. I got to deal with this on my own. I go back to my old life. I'm just going to try to ignore what Abraham did. I'm just going to ignore what Sarah did. I'm just going to try to go back, go back to my old life, do do what I did before. Listen, that really is a lifestyle that's built on moralism. It's an exhausting attempt to keep up appearances, to manage other people's perception of you, constantly worried about how did I come off? What did they think about me? Do they like me? Should I, did I say too much? Did I not say enough? It's exhausting. And that's not Christianity. I can't tell people that about me because then they're going to look, they're going to look down on me. They're going to think differently about me. They're going to think that I'm not perfect and I'm Jerry Springer jacked up like father Abraham, right? You can't manage the holiness of God. Listen, when, when Hagar says that God sees her, it's a statement of awe. Not just because God saw her, but, but because after seeing her, he didn't kill her. You just had an affair with God's man, God's dude. You start treating his wife with contempt, making her feel worthless, right? You get bounced. And then Abram's God shows up to you. She's not like, Oh, happy to see you. She's thinking I'm done. That's it. This is my last day. He's going to wipe me out right now. See, God is holy. Jesus doesn't change that. People think the old Testament God, well, he's a holy God, but Jesus, he's my boy. See, God is holy, and that's, you can't really compare it, but God's holiness is like the sun. It reveals everything that's hidden in darkness. And when things get close to it, 
It melts them. Hagar thoroughly expects to be killed. She should be killed. She's in the presence of God. She's in the presence of the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. Her, God's holiness and her sinfulness can't be together. This is where the gospel of Christianity just shines so brightly. It's not moralism. God, in the gospel here, he shines a spotlight into the sinfulness of our human heart so that we can see things as they truly are. See, there's four people in our story today, Abram, Sarai, Hagar, and Jesus, and three out of four do nothing but sin. Is that judgmental? Is that despairing? Only if you want to be right with God apart from Jesus. If you're trying to earn his approval, if you're trying to make it to heaven, if you're trying to be a good enough person and find an identity outside of Jesus Christ, that is despairing to you. It's meant to be. If you want to try to fix things on your own, the gospel condemns you. It will judge you because you're rejecting God's perfect and gracious gift to you. You are rejecting his son and the righteousness that Jesus offers to you. You're saying, no thanks, I'll do with it on my own. Four people in this story, only one is the hero. And that's Jesus. He pursues broken, lost, sexually sinful people. He comes after us. He sees us. He saves us by living the perfect life that we're all supposed to live and dying the death that we all deserve to die because of our sin. What do you do? What do you do with the God who sees everything but shows compassion in and through Jesus? What do you do with that God? Hagar worships. Hagar sees her sinfulness. The God who sees me, and yet I'm still living. What? This is a gift of grace. He's a gracious God. She meets Jesus here. To be truly known. To see the reality that we truly are unworthy. But while we're so unworthy, we're so truly loved. It, it doesn't make sense. We want to resist it. We want to earn it. We want to, like I always say, dance for our dinner. We want to make God happy and then he's going he's gonna to bless us. And God refuses. He sees through you. He sees through your heart. He sees through your motives. He sees into your mind. He knows what you're thinking. So think about that. And that should make you feel really uncomfortable. <laughs> naked. Worse than naked. Naked. 
all those evil motives. He sees. He's the God who sees. But he's also the God who covers. He's the God who gives his son. He's the God who offers us grace in and through Jesus Christ. One of the ways I know that Hagar has an encounter with Jesus here and and has an encounter with the gospel is because what happens afterward. I'm not going to go through it. I'm just going to, you can, we've already read it. So God says, Jesus says, okay, she's like, you're the God who sees, you didn't kill me. Yeah, great, great. He says, okay, this is what I want you to do. Go back to Abram and Sarah. And then he gives a real great news. Yeah, you're going to be a mother of many nations. He's going to be a donkey of a man, right? He's going to be a wild ass, right? Hey, that's what, she's, that's what, he, that's what God says. This guy is going to be, I mean, this is the birth of the Arabs, if you didn't know that. This is where they come, this is where Islam, this is the father of Islam right here, Ishmael. This is where all the fighting that goes, this is it. We're going to get into it more later. He says, yeah, go back home. Go back into that same situation I just left. Only the gospel can change a person's heart so much that they can step back into a situation like that. Only the gospel brings change like that. Moralism doesn't do it. Suck it up. Suck it up. That doesn't work. Charles Spurgeon quoted a a hymn writer, John Barrage, from 1716. And this is, um, it's been a great quote, and I wanted to read it to you today. To show the difference between moralism and the gospel. Run, John, and work, the law commands, yet finds me neither feet nor hands. Bittersweet news the gospel brings. It bids me fly and lends me wings. Say it again. Run, John, and work. The law commands. Fix yourself. Make yourself better. Pull yourself up by your bootsteps. Stop doing that. Be better. That's what the law commands. Yet finds me neither feet nor hands. Doesn't help me. Do it. Okay. I can't. I'm morally incapable of that. I can't try hard enough. I can't be consistent enough. But sweeter news, but sweeter news the gospel brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings. The gospel gives us the power. The gospel gives us the identity that we can live out of. The gospel produces the fruit in our heart. The gospel does the work in Hagar's heart here that allows her to go back into that tough situation and live a tough life. The gospel does it. Bids her fly. Tells her, the gospel tells us to do things that we can't do on our own, but it gives us the power to do them. Live in community and on mission. I can't do that. I don't like people enough. But the gospel 
can change my heart. So I want it and I can do it through the gospel, through the power of the gospel. It changes me. It's phenomenal. If you're new here, if you're stepping into this church for the first time, so many people in our culture confuse the message of moralism with the message of the gospel. That you go to church to get better and to be better and to raise good kids. That's not what this church teaches. That's not what the Bible teaches. You come to this church to hear the message of the gospel, that you are worse than you ever thought possible, but simultaneously more loved than you ever hoped or dreamed. And Jesus Christ has lived the life that you can't live. And he's died the death that you deserve to die. And he offers this to you as a free gift of grace. That's all you're going to hear at this church. 52 weeks a year. It's too good. It's too good. It's too good to be true, but it is. As we come to the Lord's table this morning, I want you to search your heart. I want you to think about the God who sees, sees you through and through. Where are you finding your identity? What false gods, what, fa- what good things have you let overtake God as the number one spot in your heart and your affections? I ask you to turn from those things and embrace the gospel. By faith in Jesus Christ, embrace it this morning. Father, I thank you for your universal word. I thank you for the word that has power. I thank you for the gift that you've given us in the Bible. I thank you for showing us how you've came to save us. How we cannot live the life that we should live and that you lived it for us, but you can empower us with your spirit and through the gospel to live in ways we never thought possible. I pray that you would do that in this room today. You would regenerate hearts. You would take people who are dead in their sins and trespasses and you would save them. You would change them. You would bring new life to them. For those who their affections have waned, their affections have has weakened, I pray that you would throw gasoline on that fire and that you would, they would be once again consumed with your word, consumed with a desire for you, consumed with what you've done for us in Christ. The gospel would be sweet. Sweeter news the gospel brings. It bids me fly and lends me wings. Thank you, Jesus, for what you've done for us. Thank you, Father, for sending your son. Thank you, Spirit, for filling us and leading us into the truth. As we come to your table today, may we take part in the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner, not in our own righteousness, but in the righteousness of Christ, not holding aught against our brother, walking in forgiveness with our fellow man, turning from our sin and walking by faith. May we take the body that was broken for us, the nourishment of our souls. May we receive that by grace. May we take the cup the new covenant bought with the precious blood of Christ. May we drink it. May the blood of Christ satisfy our soul. I thank you for this gift. In Jesus' name, amen.